If you're new to, to uh, Crossroads, you'll know that I have this habit. Even though it's not the text for the day, I like to take the, day, the day's date and select a, a, a proverb from that date. And today being the 13th, I chose um, verse 20. So, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Every parent should memorize that because I think most parents know the idea because they tell their kids that as they grow up. Um, today we're wrapping up a brief series on love and hate. We talked last week about things that, that God loves. Um, we talked about the fact that God loves to take the broken, the hurting people, broken hearts, and, and to make beautiful things. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the topic of the things that God's, God hates. I mean, I, I, I suppose... Um, there are things that if, if, if I mention them, there's, we're going to take position and say, oh, I hate that or I love that. Um, I mean, reality TV is an example. I mean, some of you, I, I realize, got to be careful, walk carefully here because I know you like your reality TV and there's some shows that, that you know, you got to have your survivor or your honey boo-boo. Okay, I get that. Um, all right. Okay, see, see what I said? It's polarized in the room. And, and then there are some, my, my thing is, okay, some reality shows I kind of enjoy them. I don't spend a lot of time on them, um, but some of them just really rankle me. Um, there's, I, heard about, I heard about a new one that's just started. I think it's going right now. It just started, in, and I don't want to promote it. I'm not telling you to watch this, but it's called Married at First Sight. You may have heard about it. And the, the concept is that uh, they got 600, between 600 and 650 people applied to be on this program. And four so-called experts. Let's see, there's a psychologist, a sociologist, a sexologist, and a spiritologist, whatever that is. Um, they, they huddled up, looked at these applications, and they found three scientifically perfectly matched couples. Okay, so there's six people selected to be on the show, apparently. And um, these... These people are paired up, and um, the, the, on their first episode, they meet their spouse. In fact, they get married in the first episode, n- not ever knowing anything about the person before. They meet them the first time, and they get married. And, and, and what the show is going to do is follow them over the next nine episodes, uh, which is compressed four weeks to watch them, and then they decide at the end of four weeks, stay married or get divorced. Now, there's a good reason for hating reality TV. I mean, I think about that and, 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 and the reason it gets under my skin, and I'm not, I'm not going to get my soapbox out here because it just be crazy, um, but it so dishonors the institution of marriage, which is holy. And, um, you know, it, it, it demotes it to a level below selecting the color of your house because most people will paint their house and they'll keep it that way at least for a year, four weeks. It's just, it's, it's terrible. So anyway, you love or you hate. You love or you hate. Another one is, you know, another one that I see and I kind of chuckle about it is um, you're either an Apple product lover or an Apple product hater. Okay, so some people love their Apple or iPhone and okay, I can see that. I've got an iPhone and I think, I think Apple's fine. And then there are the Apple haters. They say, why all the hype? Give me my Android phone and um, I'll just let the picture speak for itself. Okay. You know, there are some things, put that picture down. Um, there are some things that God loves and some things that God hates. And um, I think, uh, um, you know, in our relationships, when you're in a relationship with somebody that you love and you care about, it's important to find out what they love and what they hate. Because you want to you do a little bit more of the things they love and less of the things they hate. It'll make your relationship better. It really will. Um, and um, I think sometimes we... We, we hear this topic, and the question legitimately comes up in our culture today, does God really hate things? 
I mean, really? Because, I mean, because when our kids come home and something's happened in the schoolyard and little Johnny says, oh, I hate so-and-so because, you know, really broke my crayons today at school. And you say, no, 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 Johnny, you don't really hate him. You hate what he did, but we don't hate people, right? We, we do that as parents and um, we do that. So, so to ask the question, does God really hate things? And the answer is yes, God does. And um, it's actually found in several places in Scripture. I picked one in Proverbs 6. It was last week's uh, proverb, um, Proverbs 6. So here it is. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension among the brethren, or among the brothers. Now, I kind of expected the room to get a little quiet, and I, I noticed that there was kind of close attention to that because, you know, I think if we're going to come and look at a list of things God hates, it kind of, you know, we kind of want to straighten up and buckle up just in case because we don't want to find out that our favorite 10 things are all on the list, right? We, we don't want to be there. And, you know, there's been in my lifetime a very subtle but to me, obvious shift in our culture about the topic of hate. Um, there has been this, this there's, there's, a, there's a pressure right now to conform to the concept that you really shouldn't hate anything. In fact, there's a term that if you hate something, that makes you a hater. And that's negative. And um, it's been very, very subtle. And uh, it's almost to the point where it's, it's not good. You don't hate anything. In fact, Kesarasara. My wife told me don't sing the song, um, so I'm going to honor that. But but there's been this subtle shift that would suggest that if you hate, that's not good. In in spite in spite of the fact that God does hate some things, and to me that's a model for us. Um, and and there's a process that if you watch if you watch carefully you'll see it where where um, maybe you hate something and then after a while uh, for whatever reasons you begin to tolerate it. And there's a progression that occurs. It goes from, from toleration to accepting, and, and eventually from accepting to embracing. Anyway, the reason that we, we, we don't want to do something that the person that we love hates, right? We don't want to do things that people that we care about hate is because when we do that, it creates distance between us and them. It creates a little bit of gulf. And that distance builds loneliness. It comes in small steps, but that's what happens. Now, maybe sometime you have felt that kind of distance from somebody where somehow you went cross-grain to them in some way and you felt some distance growing between you and them. Or maybe, maybe you've even felt that distance build up between you and God. And we don't want to feel distant from God. Nobody wants to feel, nobody in their right mind wants to feel distant from God. And there are a lot of things that can happen that make us feel distant from God. Um, it could be the untimely death of somebody that you love, that you care about. Or, or maybe you, you, you have this feeling that you just don't have any close relationships. You, you have a hard time. You don't have any close friends. And it makes you feel distant from everybody, including God. Or, or maybe you feel like you're stuck in this dead-end job 
and it makes you feel distanced from God or, or you, you feel stuck somehow in life and you say to yourself, you know, God, I do the right things. I do the things I'm supposed to do and I still feel stuck here. Where are you? I don't get it. And you feel this distance. Or maybe, maybe you do okay, but then you walk into church and all these people are singing. Maybe you don't know the songs, maybe you do, but they're all singing, and from the outside, it looks like everybody else here is really close with God, and you just don't feel it. And that distance creates, that, 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 that it, it distances us, and it makes us feel separate, and, and the thing is that that distance begins to breed loneliness. It does. And I want to talk about loneliness a little bit today, because it's in the center of where we're going to go. Um, what is it that God hates? God hates the loneliness we feel from the distance we create. He hates the loneliness that we feel from the distance that we create. You know, that void, that thing inside of us that, that just, you know, something is missing. God hates that. He hates that. And you ask, well, how do we create distance from God? How do we actually do it? There are several different ways, and um, I want to just take time today to talk about two Two ways we create distance from God. And if you're taking notes, the first thing is this. One, number one, is our sin distances us from God. Um, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means every single one of us. Me, the guy leading worship, you, person to your left, person behind you. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And here's the deal. God hates the loneliness that we feel from that distance that we create. In fact, he hated it so much that he made a way to connect us back again, to cause that distance to disappear. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. God hates that loneliness that comes from the distance that we create, and our, and our, and our sin distances us from him. Now, maybe you know a little bit about oak trees, and you, you know what an acorn is. Um, an acorn is, um, is the nut from an oak tree. And uh, in our culture, we don't eat a lot of these anymore than some cultures in the world, they do eat them. Um, I mean, a lot of mammals and rodents and insects eat them now, but um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like, you know, you can, it's easier to get cashews and so forth. So we don't eat a lot. Some still in the United States, but um, it, it's, it's also been useful as like a coffee substitute in World War II when the Germans couldn't get coffee. They made coffee out of this. Um, in the Civil War, the South couldn't get coffee and they made coffee out of acorn. Um, but, and, and you can eat them. If you find them in the wild, you can go ahead and eat them. But you really better be careful if you find them in the wild because there's this, this, this creature called the acorn weevil. And you might cut it open, and in, inside of this nut, you might find this nasty, <laughs> rotten, decayed, icky, gooey thing in there. And um, you don't want that if it's got that in there. Inside. The, way that, the way that it works is um, they look exactly the same on the outside, but on the inside, they're rotten. They're really, they're really disgusting. They're, 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 they're not the same as the good, good ones. The female um, weevil, acorn weevil, gets up there and lays an egg on the bud. And that egg just sits there dormant. And then in the meantime, the acorn grows around the egg. And it gets completely grown and there's an egg inside there. It just lays in there until its moment comes. And uh, it hatches. And then it starts to eat the inside of the acorn, and that's its food. In the meantime, the acorn starts to rot and decay. And uh, on the outside, it looks fine, but in the inside, that's icky. 
Are we done with that picture? Okay, I'm done with that picture. So, um, you know, and I, I just, I, as I was studying this, one interesting thing I thought, you know, how, how do you deal with this? Actually, some of the, the best, best ways to solve this problem um, is Native Americans have come up with ways to deal with this in parts of the country where, where it's common. They would, um, they would literally use a very sophisticated and controlled fires ground fires that would kill the larva, but oak trees are pretty resilient um, to fire if you're careful and, um, and make it easier to collect them and so forth, but it was interesting. Okay, so that's a rabbit trail. I'm not going to go down that any further. On the outside, though, you look at these acorns. You can't tell because they look good, but on the inside, they're not so good. And, and here's this, there's this moment where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he, he makes this comment. He says, you guys, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all polished and beautiful on the outside. I mean, you look good, you're cleaned up, and you look pretty. But on the inside, you're full of death and decay. You're just, you know, and that's, that is exactly, this is exactly a description of what sin does to us on the inside. And there's an example in James 1.15. James tells us, Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And now here's how this connects back to Proverbs 6. Remember the list of things that God hates? Because our natural desires, our desires are actually the things on the list. They come naturally to us. God hates those things. But it's our natural state. It's the way we think, which is so radically different than the way God thinks. He thinks so differently, you know. But we are naturally bent in those directions. Um, Our desire gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. And the book, the book of James describes this death, this rot, this decay. And what happens in that little acorn is just like what goes on inside of our hearts when we're apart from God. And that distance breeds loneliness. And God hates the loneliness that we feel from the distance we create from him. So our, dis, our, our, our sin distances us from God. The second thing, and this is for those of you who especially would say that, you know, you, you are a follower, you believe in God, and you're a follower of Christ. Um, the second point that, that distances us is our complacency distances us from God. I was reading this book called The Christian Atheist. It's a good book. Um, and, and the basic, the, the, the person that it's talking about is someone who believes in God but lives their life as if he doesn't exist. It's, in other words, I mean, I believe in God, I, I, I follow Jesus, but if you look, there's no real practical evidence of it in the way I live my life day to day. And it's, you know, odd to think that that can happen. How does it happen? Proverbs 132 says this, the waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Okay, one more time, Terry. The waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That's pretty direct talk from God, and I think we can have a tendency sometimes to say, oh, only fools are complacent. Since I'm not a fool, I must not be complacent. That's how I think, right? Um, But that's not really what that's saying. The word complacent, if you know what complacent means, it means that that you're you're self-satisfied in spite of un known dangers. There's dangers around you, but you're happy. That's complacency. Happy with the way things are. And God describes people that are in that state as fools. Pretty, pretty strong words. It's almost like he's implying, you know, you really should be aware of what's going on around you. He's, he's, he's challenging that. 
to not be complacent. So, so, so how does that work in our day-to-day lives? How do we become complacent? Because I think we start out and we're doing really well with God. And then different things, something distracts us, you know. God, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I love you and I'm spending time with you. Oh, hold on. Did you see that? Was that foot in bounds? Wow. Roll that back and play that again. God, I'll get right back with you as soon as the season's over. Okay. You, you follow what I'm saying? I mean, we get distracted or it could be something that seems so good. Like, you know, God, I love you, but you know, my boss has given me this opportunity for this project at work. And you know, I've been talking to you and praying and asking for a promotion and for the opportunity to grow. And so if I just do this, I know it's going to take me away. I know I'm going to be busy all the time. My family's going to pay a price, but we've been praying and this is an important deal. I'll get back to you, God, as soon as I get past, past this point. And we're motoring along and somehow we're also find ourselves to be really busy. We're harried. We may be even frenetic with our pace in life doing all these things. You know, God, Johnny's got to get to soccer practice and Sarah, I've got to get her to gymnastics because she's, after all, she's going to be in the Olympics someday. And I'll be back to you as soon as the school year ends, God. I mean, we do, we do these things and we can become complacent, but we weren't planning it. And it wasn't evil in our mind that took us there. It was, it was all kinds of really good things that were distracting us from God. And with all that running, we're running around, but we're not running towards God anymore in our lives. We're distracted. Oftentimes, complacent people have all kinds of other pursuits. I mean, how do you know if you're too busy? Well, if you're too busy for God, you're too busy. Complacent people don't always know that they're complacent unless they look for it. And it's hard to see it when you're there. It's hard to see it in the mirror. And here's, here are some ways that you might see it. Here's an example. Somehow, things that in your life used to be vile, that you would look at something and say, oh, that's vile, I don't, want to, I don't want to touch that, it's sick, I don't have anything to do with that. Over time, they become, become okay. They, they become acceptable to you. you. You begin to see sin a little bit differently. And the first thing you do is you kind of just, you know, instead of stepping back, you kind of stand next to it, and then your arm kind of goes around it, and then... And then your other arm goes around it. And then, you know, then, then your leg goes around it. And pretty soon you're embracing this thing that in the past you considered vile. And you begin to accept it. Now, this happens, this happens in Christian circles too. It does. I mean, we have a tendency, we Christians, I'm a member of the club, right? We have a tendency to um, give it safe labels, We'll attach names to it that make it sound not quite, make it sound okay. You know, we'll say things like, you know, I really messed up. But if we actually call it what it really is, it sounds different. You know, we might, we might say something like this, you know, I've been struggling with anxiety for a while when actually what you're saying is, no, I really just don't trust God to provide for me. Or, or we say, you know, I've been having trouble getting into God's word trouble reading some of God's word. The truth is, no, what's really going on is other things are more important than spending time with God. Forgive me for being direct. I mean, I'm really, this is, I could be doing this in a closet somewhere. Terry, you know, you should know that most of the time when I preach is because I've been pulled through some knot hole by God saying, come on, Terry, we're going to strain this thing out of you. And then it makes, makes it to the pulpit. 
Not this next one. Just <laughs> whatever. Now, we say things, things I've heard. I've heard, I've, heard, I've heard this before. Oh, it's just a little flirting. It's innocent. It's not innocent. The truth is, you want this woman more than you want your wife, and you're spending too much time with her. That's what it is. Or we say, you know, it's my only vice, and it's not that big a deal, when the truth is you're trying to find peace in the bottom of an ice cream bowl instead of from the king of peace. Our distance creates this complacency, and we begin to find ourselves where we never expected that we would be. How do we get there? How do we get distracted? How do we get distant and complacent? And, and then we find ourselves lonely, and God hates the loneliness that we feel from the, this distance that we create. And we have to get to the point where we see anything, everything that distances us from God. We have to see that as sin. And that's exactly what Paul says. He's, he's talking about that in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. There's no sin. There's no distraction that's better. There's nothing that's better. Um, for, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I think we need to come to a place where we realize that all that stuff is garbage. The garbage creates distance, which breeds loneliness, and God hates that loneliness. Do you ever feel, this is rhetorical, do you ever feel distant from God? And I would say the answer to that's got to be yes. I mean, I think everybody feels distant from God or has felt it at some point. You know, me, you, person next to you. Um, I mean, sometimes in different seasons of our life, we can feel this, this ebb and this flow, you know, um, this distance from God. And, and if you feel distant from God today, right this moment, I want you to know you're in exceptionally good company. You are. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we feel that loneliness and that distance, and we think, you know, nobody else could feel this way. I'm alone in this. And the truth is, that's not true. That's a lie. That is really not true. Everybody has felt that way at some time. And, and there are a lot of great examples of that that are in Scripture. One of them was King David, who was described as a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 10, verse 1, he says, he, he says this. He says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Can you sense his loneliness? He's this deep something's going on here. I mean, we're not going to dive into that today. Here's another one. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and um, he's explaining to them that stuff that's going to go on. He says, and all you guys are going to deny me. I'm paraphrasing. You know the story. All you guys are going to deny me and good old Pete. Uh, uh, not me. No, 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 not me. You need to know I got your back. I'm not, you go, I go. I'm, I, I, not me. And Jesus says, oh, Pete, no, you're not going to do it. You're going to do it three times. And Peter goes, no way. I'm sorry, God, but you're wrong. Can you imagine the discussion he's having with Jesus? He didn't say that last part, but that's basically what he's saying. He's saying, not me, I'm not going to do it. And you can read about this uh, in the Gospels. Luke 22 tells the stories, and um, he denies it. He's ashamed, he's embarrassed, he's afraid. He says, no, I don't know him. And then he does it again a second time. And the third time that he does it, it happens that Jesus is nearby. And Jesus hears him. Okay, you get this? Close, close friend. I'll never deny you. And now, not only is he denying him, it's the third time. 
And Jesus hears it. And the scripture says, their eyes meet. Capture that moment. He has failed his savior and his savior has now locked eyes. I wonder what was in those eyes. I doubt, I doubt if it was anger. I don't think it was disappointment. I'm sure it was love. That was what, what Jesus, Jesus was probably thinking, I'm so sorry for you, Pete. I know this is not going to be easy for you to realize your failure. I'm sure he's saying, I love you anyway. All of that stuff is coming through his eyes. But even though Jesus is saying those things to us, we don't have a hard time. We have a hard time hearing it. Because what does Peter do? Scripture says he goes away and he wept bitterly. He goes away. He distances himself from God and he wept bitterly. He's alone and lonely. Another example of someone who's felt this way is Jesus himself. He's hanging on the cross, Matthew 27. He's in excruciating pain, and he cries out, God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus felt distance from the Father. I don't want him to feel distance from the Father, but somehow I find it comforting that my Savior has experienced what I've experienced. Gives me hope. You can just hear from the words the loneliness the hurt that's going on. So here's the thing that I, w- I want to make sure that we catch today, and that's if you're feeling distant from God, when we feel distant from God, God is not distant from us. He's not. One of my favorite passages is Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. It's a great one to just sit and read. Um, I'll just give you a couple of verses out of that. Verse starting in verse five. You hem me in, Behind and before, you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. No matter where where I go, you're going to be there, God. In our highest highs and in our lowest lows, you're there. No matter what. Verse 9. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. When we feel distant from God, God is not distant from us. Here's another one, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers... Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. That pretty much covers everything, right? We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what you did last night, no matter what you're going to do tonight, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter how great you are or how you know, wonderful you are or how many songs you sing to God. There's nothing you can do that would separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we feel distant from God, God is not distant from us. God hates this loneliness that we feel from the distance we create. He hates that. So you pick up two acorns, can't tell from the outside, One has an acorn weevil in it and it's full of decay and rot and death. And if you drop it to the ground, what will happen from that is nothing. 
it's just death. It's going to stay that way. But the other one doesn't have the weevil in it. In fact, it's healthy. And when it drops to the ground, something wonderful happens. Life explodes out of it, and it grows, and it begets more life. When we're full of decay and death, desires that take us away from the things of God, when when that's correctly said about us, and we have these longings, nothing can come from that but death. It can't. Sometimes we think that those pursuits will take us to something. We can't. They don't have the ability to take us there. And when we realize that God loved us so much, that he hates so much the loneliness that we feel, that gnawing, that emptiness that we feel, he hates it so much that he actually sent his son so that I could be made clean. And then by the power of Jesus, by the saving power of Jesus, I can be changed. I can be bent towards the things that God loves. I can begin to have a mind that's renewed. I can be refreshed. I can, I can, I can be better at thinking about things that are pure and about noble and about lovely things. And I can have a different kind of life. When we feel distant from God, it's important to, to remember that God is not distant from us. God hates the loneliness we feel from the distance that we create. I want to pray for you. And, um, and I encourage you to a couple of things. Be willing to hate. Man, that sounds so radical today. A lot of people in our culture would take me on head on for making that statement. You have to be careful what you hate, but you have to be willing to hate. Because if you're unwilling to hate, that means you're willing to embrace anything. Let the Spirit of God guide you in that. Don't pervert that for your own ends. But then love like Jesus loves. Love like Jesus loves. The second thing I want to remind you about is that when you feel distance from God, He is right there with you anyway. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you, God, for the fact that there is nothing in the earth, above the earth, or under the earth. There is no power, there is no authority that can separate us from your love. Nothing can do that for us. Thank you, God. I'm so glad because sometimes I do things and I look at that and I think, oh, Terry, you knew better what is wrong with you. And although you might show me those things that are wrong with me, you love me to them, God. And I thank you for that approach. I thank you that your solution to my lostness was your son. Amen. I thank you that your solution to my hopelessness was your love. And God, I, I'm, I want to pray in this moment over the topic of fear and, and remind myself and hearts here that Scripture promises us that it's perfect love that casts out all fear. I pray, Lord, for people who would have anxiety over these topics and would have a sense that just maybe this is a little bit cross-grained because culture so much says, oh, no, no, you're not supposed to hate anybody or anything. And I understand that the, 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 the motives behind that would seem so full of peace and generosity. 
But the truth is that, God, there are things that you hate. And we're your children and we love you. And to have relationship with you, we need to embrace your viewpoint on issues. Help us, Lord, to find that, find your heart, your loving heart. Because you're not about hate, you're about love. And while we're praying, church, I would like to ask you to keep your eyes closed. I, I've mentioned the fact that the solution here is that God hates that loneliness, and so he sent his son. Some of you might feel lonely. If you've never opened your heart to Jesus before, there is something in your heart that's missing. There is a place that you cannot, that you cannot scratch the itch because there is no other way to the Father but by Jesus, Scripture says. And yet, eternity rests on that topic. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, when your end comes, and it's appointed all of us die eventually, when your end comes, there will be an entrance exam into heaven. Scripture says that there is a book, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life, and your name is either written in there when you get there or not. How do you get your name written in there? The question will be this, not, were you nice? Did you help somebody across the street? Did your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? That is not the exam. The question will be this. The father will say, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah? If your answer came back, I I don't know, I didn't know him. God's going to say, I didn't know you either. I'm sorry. You You have to leave. But if you say, oh, I love Jesus. I open my heart. He's my king and my Lord and my savior. God's going to say to you, enter into my rest. Enter in. Come on. It's going to be good in here. That's what it's going to be. And every single person who's ever been born or created will answer those questions. If you've never, ever opened your heart, I'm going to give an invitation right now and I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than to respond in your heart and say, yes, I need to make that decision because eternity rests on it. While eyes are closed, I want, I just, I want to pray and I'm just going to look across the room. If you've never opened your heart before and you want to, to seal this issue right now, to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, just look up at me and just let me make eye contact with you and I'll pray for you. That's all. I'm not going to embarrass you. I promise. So I'm looking. Is that okay? Is that why you're looking? Okay. Let me see your hand if I, just to make sure. Okay. One more time, I don't want to miss anybody. Well, thank you, Lord, for love and grace and mercy. I need them, we need them. And we love you and we're thankful, Lord, that there is nothing we can do that will distance us because you are going to always be present. Papa, we rest.